0: I suppose the Quant look is simple, sexy and chic. Mary Quant, you've been universally acknowledged as the woman who changed the face of fashion and beauty forever. Do you know when your own interest in fashion began? Can you remember it?
1: As a child, I used to inherit my clothes from a a cousin and they, they weren't me. I must have been a gusty child, but I felt they weren't... They want me, that was it. So I was six years old in bed with measles and I chopped up the bedspread. I was desperately trying to make myself the dress I wanted. And I always wanted to design clothes. It was an obsession all the time I was growing up.
0: Were you trendy at school, though?
1: I was a whiz at rearranging school uniforms. <laughs> yes. And there was a guy on tap-dancing classes that had what in today's times, would, would be a sort of vidal bucket kind of haircut and she wore Which you still have I see. Yeah, which I still have I love all Vidal's haircuts and, and she wore a black skinny uh, a sweater and about six inches of pleated skirt and black tights and black patent leather shoes with a sort of strap around the ankle and white ankle socks and it was that amazing kind of focus on the ankle and the leg and the proportions that just stunned me as being absolutely it. And in a funny way, that image was always with me as I
0: grew up. Now, when you came to meet me this morning, did you put much thought into what you were going to wear? You're dressed entirely in black, you're wearing a black leather jacket, a very trendy, studied black leather belt, and you're wearing sandals with tights with them, which I would have thought was a bit of a fashion error, but obviously not on you.
1: (laughs) I have to run clothes in, because... I think when you put them on, you then forget them. You know, you're then what you're about being, aren't you? Not about, oh God, I hope this looks all right or any of that.
0: Has that always been what your design was about? Was that sense of wearability, something that you could move well, about in? That's I, what Coco think, Chanel said, isn't it? She wanted clothes that people could wear. I think it's very important.
1: But I think you put it together in a way that is you, that flatters you. You take, I think, from fashion the pieces that flatter and please you then you put it together in a very individual way and having done that you then forget it
0: and enjoy life But of course what you were most instrumental in starting in the 50s and 60s was the sense of being in fashion, you were either in fashion or out of fashion Now I don't know that that necessarily exists anymore but there was certainly Mm. that feeling of you know, if you didn't look it you weren't it Well it was a time of revolution,
1: wasn't it? absolute revolution. In retrospect, it is easy to see. There was a vacuum, you know, from the war. There was rationing and food got even worse. And there was nothing. There was nothing for young people. There was nothing that was fun. And I think the people who had been involved in the war, they were waiting for things to revert to the way they were before the war, which, of course, isn't what actually happens. So then people just got at it particularly young people, got at it and did what they wanted to do. I mean, theatre before then was kind of absolutely classical. Painting had got stuck. And then along came this new generation of
0: people who didn't didn't even know the rules, who just go on with it and did it. I suppose, though, you'd been brought up in a society where there weren't necessarily rules most of you had been evacuees you you were brought yes. up in blackheath you were an evacuee that wasn't that wasn't about the rules of being with your mum and dad all all the way through your childhood was it i i think there was an element certainly of that because people were moved around the countryside and
1: so yes and in fact children actually rather enjoyed the war because it's very much making things from from what you could find but there was this enormous energy, and particularly Chelsea was... And the art schools were really the hotbed of it at all, I think. It's from the art schools that the new music came, the new painting, the new fashions, the, the new attitudes to theatre, and and on all these areas.
0: Well, like, like other fashion designers, Zandra Rhodes, Ossie Clark, Jim mm. Muir, you went to art school rather than fashion college. Was that because you knew that that, that was where... The best scene was was going to
1: be. No, I didn't. I, I desperately wanted to go to fashion school. My parents, being sensible school teachers, said uh, fashion is much too much too daring. And and the compromise we made between us was to go to a straight art school. To call goldsmiths a straight art school is rather (laughs) an amusing idea because already it was a very provocative art school that produced all sorts of amazing people. But it worked for me because at that time the fashion schools used to take their students off to Paris and they would see the couture collections. And, of course, French couture collections were then designed precisely for a tiny minority, a few thousand very rich women that lived a way of life that had nothing to do with anybody else. And and it just got stuck at that. I mean, now, of course, the couture is designed for for mass production, for ready-to-wear for life, but they didn't then. So... Uh, I, I went to Goldsmiths, and at a Goldsmiths, it was very much like a club. You found you found a table to yourself, and you got on with what you wanted to do. It was a heavenly place. And there I met Alexander Plunkett Green, uh, my husband. husband later, and we talked together about what we wanted to do, and we we wanted to start this um, this shop, and we wanted to start a, a restaurant or a jazz club underneath it. And he also had a friend, Archie McNair, who had legal training, which was the one bit of sort of good sense amongst us all. And we we did indeed start uh, that shop in the King's Road with the restaurant Alexander's underneath, which was the most almost terrifying success. People would be four deep
0: outside the window. You were married to Alexander Plunkett Green for 33 years. Mm. He died 11 years ago at the age of 58. In 1966, you wrote, Life as I know it now began when I first saw Plunkett. What do you remember about that first sighting? Well, he was terrific. He was
1: the most glamorous man anybody could meet. Very tall, very dashing, and wore amazing clothes. He wore his mother's gold silk. A pajama top as a shirt, and some amazing burgundy-coloured, incredibly tight trousers, but a hipster cut like cowboys. And
0: he had very long, delicious hair. He was quite something. And you didn't think, as perhaps people might think now, if they saw a man dressed so flamboyantly, well, he must be gay. He was far from gay. (laughs) (laughs) What were you wearing when you when you first wore him? Because you were looking pretty provocative yourself. Well,
1: I suppose I was always making and designing clothes um, very much for myself first and then for others.
0: I thought you were wearing nothing but balloons when you first met him. Uh, That is said to be so. Well, you have to tell me whether or not it's the truth. (laughs) Yes, that was was an art school ball. You arrived at the art school ball and all you were wearing was balloons. Balloons and quite big, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Enough to cover up the important bits, in other words. Indeed, indeed. Unless they burst, of course. (laughs) You had opened your shop with Archie McNair and with Alexander Plunkett Green. You'd opened that in 1955. Mm. You were saying that it was terrifyingly successful. Had you not anticipated success? We hadn't anticipated that that degree
1: of success. We didn't really have the the working capital, to to handle that amazing success. We could only make so many clothes. I mean, I went to Harrods to buy the stuff I wanted. The Um, fabric? The fabric. You didn't know to buy it wholesale? Well, no. I mean, Archie told me that Harrods was the best credit because uh, you didn't have to pay for a year. Indeed, that seemed a very good idea. And all the fabrics I particularly liked you could get in one place because I liked using men's city suitings, striped city suitings and... You know, Prince Princewell's checks and things like that and then mixing them with sort of satins and laces and very feminine fabrics. So, I mean, I like the juxtaposition of the, the masculine fabrics and the feminine fabrics put together. I'd always had in my head also the idea, you know, the heroine in the films that she always falls in the water and has to be pulled out and she has to wear his pyjamas, doesn't she? You know that thing and they're a bit... Which is very sexy. Very sexy, yes. That approach to... Style and sexiness, I think, always appealed to me. So I liked this mixture of masculine fabrics, and they were lined in silk, and they were in these beautiful masculine fabrics, and they were all with it, uh, like tunic dresses or mini skirts. Um, they worn over uh, skinny rib sweaters, which I persuaded knitwear um, manufacturers to make. And I had an awful job to get tights, because nobody made tights, because they're all stocking machines. So I, I went to theatrical manufacturers at the beginning and persuaded them to make tights in Coleman's mustard and sort of broomy, grapey colour and black. You know. Did they think you were mad? Oh, yes. <laughs> but it went together. You know, it, the look went together. The simple pieces, when put together, were very, very strong. And, of course, to hell a hell of a lot of provocation and excitement. 60s. Wanted it, needed it, had to have it, revolution.
0: Change was so vital. Would it be possible, do you think, for you and Alexander to do now what you managed to do together in the 50s and the 60s? Create a revolution? Well, nobody wants revolution all the time.
1: It would be dreadfully uncomfortable. I think we're now living in a time of evolution where we just we improve things, we do it slightly differently, but there is a an understandable basis a root that's similar and then we do it better and we do it better. It evolves. Fashion's in a wonderful position now. And we have the greatest
0: fashion schools in the world. In nineteen sixty two you were called Vogue's ultra front room couple. This is you and Alexander. Did you see yourselves as being the ultimate in chic? I don't think I thought like that, but I do
1: see that we were photographed at such Brilliant photographers. I mean, who could think of anything better than being photographed by, by Bailey and Donovan and Averton and I mean, so the photographs are
0: absolutely stunning. I, I, I can see that. But did you see yourselves as being the leaders of Chelsea? You had created the desirability of that whole area, hadn't you? No, I was just obsessed with what I was doing and with design. Did Alexander share that obsession I think he saw it as,
1: as as great fun and he was a kind of marketing genius and a kind of PR genius, you know. But our friends were um theatre people, painters, designers, like Terence Conran, who you know, we were we were very, very supportive of each other and very strong friends. And, you know, it's hard probably to answer now, but designers were thought of in, in, in this country were thought of as as a, a very difficult and unnecessary luxury. And so it, in its way, it was quite a, a, a battle to persuade manufacturers to, to make up your know, designs and so on. Um, but we also had machinists working in our flat. We cut the patterns there and had the clothes made there and and I would dash back to Harris, buy some more stuff bring it back, cut it and take it into Bazaar, the shop So it was a real assembly line It was a circular business, yes
0: You'd have pop stars coming in too
1: Absolutely, I mean Lennon particularly, I mean his cap came from our shop there and many of their clothes came from the shop there and of course their girlfriends also modelled for us you know, Patty Boyd and Jenny Boyd and so on and we did tours all over America with uh, models who were, of course, the girlfriends of the, the Beatles or the girlfriends of Clapton, or, you know, they, they were known. And uh, we travelled a uh, city a day with a pop group and 26 suitcases and these terrific girls putting on shows City a Day. It was, it, it was amazing stuff. And very, very exhausting, but terribly exciting.
0: How much of your design was... Original invention, and how much was it observation of what was going on around you and what was going to be the newest look? Well, there wasn't
1: anything going on around me, it was what I wanted to do, and I quickly realized that enough of my friends, enough people I knew, and indeed, then
0: um, you know, the manufacturers from America confirmed it this is what people wanted. What would you say that you can take complete credit for? I thought you had. Invented the miniskirt until yes. I read the research, and it seems from that you didn't invent the miniskirt. You m- you might have made it hugely popular, but it wasn't originally your idea. Oh yes, it, well it was my idea. I mean the miniskirt is proportion, and what happened was
1: that at the same timing, Courrèges did that proportion. And uh, and so did so did I in London, I mean obviously the designs were different, the miniskirts were different than and the dresses were different, but the proportion which became known as the miniskirt was was the same. And so that's what uh, caused the caused the situation. So it was indeed the miniskirt.
0: What was the miniskirt saying? What was that statement about? Was it about women's emancipation or women's availability? Uh,
1: well. It's always easy to analyse um, looking back and one can see that the clothes... Fashion always anticipates the time, it anticipates the mood, doesn't it? And one can see that the
0: clothes, the whole idea of the clothes said, isn't life marvellous? Did fashion predict the fact that there was going to be a contraceptive pill pretty soon in the market, though? I, I
1: think in a way, because it always... You you can see by the look, you know, it did suggest it's marvellous to be a woman, it's marvellous to be alive and to be... A woman now, right now, because, you know, the emancipation of women was only only for real when women could have their own careers, make their own money and be economically independent. But you were doing So you were an excellent role
0: model, really. Well,
1: that I suppose too, yes. But the miniskirt sort of did certainly, and the hot pants and the hipster pants later, it did all suggest, you know, I'm in charge. I love being female. I love being alive and this is it. They were very, very
0: optimistic times and a very optimistic look. Were you a bit of a tease at that time? I've read from the cuttings that you were interviewed by a journalist and you had revealed to this journalist that your pubic hair, you had dyed green and shaved it into a heart shape. (laughs) Very adventurous. (laughs) Yes, this was an interview. uh,
1: I, I was being... Chivied by a journalist, it went on and on, about why do women decorate themselves, you know, and I, I said it is part of being a woman, you know, this was a man. If you were a woman, you would understand, even if we didn't wear clothes, we would find a way of decorating ourselves, for instance,
0: I said. <laughs> I see. Were you actually sporting yes. a green pubic heart yes. at that time? You <laughs> yes. were. Whose idea was it? Yours or Alexander's?
1: Alexander's.
0: <laughs> and it wasn't green. <laughs> and was he prepared, was Alexander prepared to decorate himself also?
1: No, I, I, think, I think it is fundamentally true that it is one of the joys of being um, uh, a woman. And uh, I think, you know, makeup has an awful lot to do with that. I mean, I think uh, it's a way of getting into the mood to want to go out in the evening, to want to go out and enjoy yourself and enjoy being you as a woman. And we kind of, we kind of put on the makeup, telling ourselves, gosh, you're terrific, you know. We kind of gee ourselves up. It is a kind of self-decorating thing. And well, it you... gives us the confidence to
0: be yeah. what we want to be. Ah, so does that mean dressing up makes you something that you're perhaps not and therefore the confidence to face the world? A little bit. It makes you more of what you want to be. Tell me, who do you wear clothes for? Who do you think women in general wear clothes for? Do they do it for men or for themselves? Well, by doing it
1: for yourself, I mean, you do it to make yourself feel good and, and to think, wow, I look great, which is, of course, what is, makes you also pleasing
0: to a man. So they're completely interlocked, aren't they? So it's neither one thing nor the other. It's, it's both. actually both. <laughs> yes. In 1966... Mary Quant Cosmetics was launched. Mm. You already by then had a business which was worth millions. You were selling to America, to France, to just about every country in the in the developed world. Vogue described you as the major fashion force in the world, outside Paris. I'd have thought you were even more successful than Paris.
1: Paris wasn't breaking new ground. Mm, exactly. Uh, you see... The miniskirt, the proportions, and the tights, and the pieces that went together that gave the look that uh, was so 60s uh, was, was, so was, London, was so quant, was so quant, it was so London, and the London girls had the legs, and that 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 was the look. Then, when well, I met Vidal Sassoon, who you know he was cutting hair in a completely different way, and and his approach was architectural to the shape of the hair, and the whole approach was absolutely original. And that absolutely—not only did I adore him, but he, his his way of cutting hair was the, the exact piece that I needed to go with the look of my clothes. And so we worked together. He cut the models' hair for all my uh, the girls showing my clothes. And I'd come to see that makeup was was stuck. Makeup didn't fit this. Cosmetics had got stuck in exactly the same way as they were before the war. And I'd been doing my makeup with, um, well, from art school. In art school, I used Caran d'Ache crayons and, or a paint box, you know, a watercolour paint box with brushes and so on because cosmetics were hard and lacquered and cosmetic companies thought that lipstick should be... I think uh, red or pink or orange or forget it you know that was that, <laughs> was, that was the range of it. and and eye colors they were about sort of blue and purple and green or that was it there was nothing nothing impressionist or soft or or to do with fashion about it and i also found that the photographic models like shrimpton and goddington they used uh, theatrical makeup to get the colors they wanted you know they used Greys and browns and soft colours, and they used brushes, and so I became more and more interested in in wanting to make a cosmetic collection. And in 1966, we launched the makeup, which because it was so needed, it was was it was this tremendous uh, success. The packaging was black and white and silver. Uh, the, the daisy, daisy <laughs> which
0: I doodled uh, uh,
1: uh, before in various ways on underwear and clothes and things, and you know, it became sort of uh, registered, exactly like that. And uh, the product was the colour. It's now like a great
0: um, art shop of colour. But the Quant Revolution had spread like wildfire. Mm. Yes. Were were there times when you looked out your car window and thought, I have designed the world? (laughs) I think I... I mean, I hope I brought a lot of fun and a
1: lot more fashion into all the areas, I brought a lot of change. I, I can see that. Um, because I, I also was asked to do bed bedwear, bed linen and by ICI. And again, I mean, I said, rather as you're suggesting, but, uh, you know, I, I am fashion. They said, but I don't know this field. And they said, yes, but we want to bring fashion in to duvet covers, wallpapers, all these areas. And then carpets, you know, it was irresistible. I mean, I loved it. But how
0: did you cook? With the fame, Mary Quant was a household name the world over. What does that do to your head? <laughs> it's kind of
1: funny. It's just kind of funny, you know. You have a sort of double take. You see, you see in a, the name like that on no, newspapers or whatever, and, and you sort of react. I uh, so, sort of react. Oh dear, what's she been up to now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> almost detached. Yeah. I mean, I am Mary Quant, and I did get into all these errors and I do um, tend to to have ideas and I do tend to to design ways. say, but why not? Why not do this? Why not that? Uh, I've always
0: enjoyed that enormously and always will. How, how generous was your husband about that level of fame, that it was your name that, that was up there in the bright lights, not his?
1: He said, "Well, I'm glad I don't have to put, put on makeup before I can talk to anybody in the morning." <laughs> that's, that's it. But yes, it, did, the, the, it was uh, amazingly sort of t- tough work. Of course, the one time I, I think Sunday, Sunday Times worked out, I was doing something like 18 collection. It, it was it was um, a hell of a schedule.
0: Did you but, have time for each other? But so
1: exciting. Mm. Well, yes,
0: because we worked together. We did. Now, I interviewed Michelle Mohn, the bra tycoon, just a oh, couple yes. of weeks ago, and she was saying that she'd had to bring in a coach from America so that her husband and her could learn how to work with each other, because basically life was turning into the War of the Roses. <laughs> they were becoming exceedingly competitive and could never agree on anything. How did yes. you work things out? Our rows were, were terrific. I mean, they were great fun. we had real things to
1: argue about, you know, it was part, uh, it had a point, you know, it was much more fun than arguing about the housekeeping money or something like that, it was real real competitive, joisting stuff, and at the end of it, we did tend to sort of give way, I would give way to him on the marketing or sales, and he would give way to me design-wise, even the rows were fun.
0: If you hadn't met him, life would have been so different. Though, it would it? have been different. It, wouldn't, it would indeed be, be different. One thing, I, um, my son Orlando would not be there. Well, you had Orlando in 1970. Mm, yes. Was this very much a, a, a planned thing? Had you made the conscious decision that now is the time where I want to have family? Well, I did get very broody because the 70s were a very broody time. How did you take to motherhood and domesticity yourself? absolutely loved it, to my surprise. I absolutely loved it. I uh, adore cooking.
1: Um, I like the whole thing. I'm very greedy. I, I enjoy an awful lot of things, like gardening as well. I, I can't tell you how I enjoy life. How are you coping on your own? Well, I don't live alone. I live with a friend. And I live... Uh, in the country, and I, I I work there about three days a week and two days in London. So is this a romantic friend that you that you? Oh yes, of course, of course, of course. And I have a very very large and very funny shaggy dog called Ferdinand, and he keeps me very amused. <laughs> and uh, he makes me go. He takes me for walks.
0: What's Orlando like now? What does he do?
1: He he's works in computers and yes and and is doing
0: some very interesting, enjoyable stuff in that hair. Is he at all arty? Uh, he's very stylish. And who does he get his style from? Is it his mum or his dad? I can't think. <laughs> <laughs> the Quant name was the foundation of a significant business empire. The five-petal daisy yes. was its immediately recognisable logo, its signature. You no longer own that name. Your company was bought over by a Japanese company a couple of years ago. Doesn't that feel a little strange? But I am Mary Quant. (laughs)
1: Yes. And the company is Japanese, uh, my Japanese Japanese manufacturers that I've loved working with. We have a shop on Madison Avenue, we have a shop in London, there will be
0: another, and we have a shop in Paris. But in Japan we have 200 shops. You once said good taste is death, vulgarity. Is life? Yes. Do you still stick by that? I do. So, what's good taste and what's vulgarity? It's an extreme statement, of course, but it's fundamentally right.
1: What is first called vulgar, so often becomes acceptable, and it, it, it's, it's moving on. And life is all about moving on, enjoying, enjoying it, and enjoying moving on to the next thing. Were you born in
0: the right place at the right time? Yes. I've been lucky. Mary Quant, thank you very much indeed. Edie, thank you.